Hi, this is Elliot Fishman, and welcome to this current state of the practice, MDCT CTA 2010. And every year I do this talk about this time of year, though I change the years from 2008 to 2009 to 2010. And the reason I choose this time of year is because I always put this talk together for my February course. And those of you who were at the 26th annual Cutting Edge last week, hopefully you had a great time. The weather was a bit cool in Florida, but the talks were terrific, and I think the meeting was very successful. And we'll be back there next year. I think it's the 11th to 14th or 10th to 13th of February at the Disney Yacht Club 2011. So be there or be square. And anyway, when I gave this talk, I mentioned that so much is changing in our practice and so much will change over the coming years. And over the next year, I made the point that one of the things you will see is the capability of using smartphones, in this case an iPhone, to be able to look at images and to interact with images, to adjust windows, to do multiplanar in real time. And it makes the point that so many changes are happening, both from a hardware perspective and from a software perspective. And that really determines our capabilities in great degree. But really, it's not just technology we're talking about, but uh, the goal of optimizing patient care and hopefully improving patient outcomes is really how we use the technology. So technology in and of itself is not that helpful unless it's used properly. I made the point at the meeting that CT has made a lot of progress, but it was 64 slice that I think really was the uh, strategic moment, surely in terms of getting isotropic data sets. And we've only done better than that. And the current additions of scanners from a flash to the GE high DCT to things that are going to come along really will only improve of what we can do. I always make the point that the reason I pick 64 as the uh, critical point is because we increased the number of slices and isotropic resolution really became standard. And so although 16 slice CT was a great improvement over uh, four and four over single slice, 64 slice really took us into that final hurdle. And as we go to the newer scanners, which take 64 and put it as a baseline, we're able to get scanners now like the flash, for example, where you can scan as quickly as I rotate this data set. That's the entire time it took to get any one of these studies. So isotropic resolution with optimized scan times of a second or less. The ability to look at this image and see, gee, 64 slices is terrific. And we can do the liver or pancreas or kidneys in about 10 seconds. But imagine doing it in less than half a second. And whether you're looking at a focal examination or a chest abdomen, again, covering 60 centimeters in 13 seconds or two and a half seconds, a factor of five. So everything we do truly changes with this technology. The speed requires the contrast to be where we need it to be. So in many cases where we use routine preset delays previously, we're going more to triggering because you need to be exact. Because when you press the button to scan, I always make the point, it's almost like pressing the button to stop scanning. And so we want to make certain we have optimal contrast opacification. And when we trigger, we trigger later. Here's 170 and here's 270. Well, the reason you trigger later is the scan is so fast and triggering at 270 in this example, by the time we hit the place we want to be at after we've moved the patient and there's a delay for breath hold, now we're at 500. So you can see the capabilities we have. It's also important to recognize because we scan the volume very quickly, 
we have very good detail as to the top and bottom of the data set with the same uh, contrast density that indeed becomes very important so really good capabilities in terms of the best 3D data sets we can create there's no flow related artifacts typically and you can see the uh, the sharp detail with isotropic resolution and really optimized visualizations now I've given some talks recently on CTSS making the point that we're not at the end of the road we can improve temporal and spatial resolution uh, but it's, it's a challenge I mean when you're scanning at under 0.5 seconds I guess the best you can go is about 0.5 seconds or 0.49 seconds better we know spatial resolution we'd like it to get better particularly for things like cardiac cath CTA coronaries where catheterization is about 0.2 and CT is in the 0.3 to 0.4 millimeter range and we like to do it and there are problems by not having better resolution uh, for example calcium blooming uh, our limited ability to characterize plaques are very dependent on the uh, spatial resolution but we recognize of course it's a trade-off because if you want to double the spatial resolution you have to increase the dose by two to the fourth or a sixteen-fold increase in dose which is just not capable so there will be new techniques to improve the resolution um, but it's not going to be simply brute force now as long as I mention dose let me just say that uh, no doubt over the next year or two or three radiation dose has been one of the critical issues we'll also speak about contrast but only briefly radiation dose everybody got interested in it with cardiac CT but it's not just cardiac CT it's all of CTs and a day before the meeting the FDA had the statement FDA reigns aims to rein in radiation-based medical scans and there is an initiative with the FDA and hopefully you know we can do things with industry and with hospitals and FDA and do things that are best for our patient but again it's something that's coming down the line now we want to make certain that things are done in a rational fashion articles like Einstein's article or Brenner's article articles that simply take data extrapolate out and then say two percent of cancers are caused by CT it's not really where we need to be at we need to really have a logical understanding of the topic we need to understand that manufacturers and radiologists technologists need to work together there are many different dose reduction strategies and you want to make certain you optimize those on a daily basis but knowing that when all is said and done at the end of the day you need to use radiation if you want to do the study now simple things are of course doing the right study on the right patient and doing it correctly the first time and I always make the point that you double the dose if you do the study poorly the first time so the most dose efficient study is the correct study if you need two phases get it right make the diagnosis treat the patient move on so again it's really optimization now in saying that new things are coming along this iterative reconstruction algorithms are very promising here's an article from Silva at Duke using the GE system can improve diagnostic quality at reduced dose now again we'll discuss ACER and in these imaging reconstruction algorithms but it's important to recognize what they do is they smoothen information now it takes a bit longer but the longer part is not critical it's a smoothing that's problematic in other words you can make an image look good you decrease the noise by smoothing the image but then you also may wipe out information so you indeed want to be very careful and this point about decreasing dose we have to really be cognizant that we don't decrease information to a point where it's hazardous to the patient um, 
again, we know any risk we want to minimize, but again, it's a balancing act. Cohen, Melvin Cohen, pediatric radiologist, made this good point that if you lower the dose too low, perhaps that you're going to miss the diagnosis and the risk is higher from missing the diagnosis than from the radiation dose. He makes the point very nicely. There are two risks from radiation, the typical uh, increased incidence of cancer, but the little discussed risk of missing a diagnosis because of suboptimal image quality as a consequence of lowering the dose too much. And I think we've all are beginning to see that. So one must be confident that we can make an accurate diagnosis. And again, you don't want a high dose, but you want to balance information with dose. The risk-reward needs to be in the patient's favor, and it can't be in one direction or the other. Now, I've spoken to you a little bit before about the whole concepts of radiation exposure, whether the linear no-threshold theory is indeed true or not, and this was a point-counterpoint in radiology this year. And I'll just mention that you should read this, and hopefully one of the things we, we owe the public, and hopefully with the FDA, it won't be just seat-of-the-pants discussions or hysteria. People will look at the science of radiation issues and really make decisions based on the science, not on some haphazard uh, way of doing things. And again, you need to really look at the data before you make a decision. And again, this quote by Tubino that uh, preconceived concepts impede progress. In the case of the LNT model, they have resulted in substantial medical, economic, and other societal harm. So again, we need to judge things by facts, not judge things by emotion. And other articles, McCullough makes similar points. Again, if a patient needs a study, it's a risk-reward. Otherwise, nobody would swim, or nobody would drive in a car, and nobody would take a plane. It's a matter of getting things at the lowest possible dose yet making certain that we can really make the right diagnosis for that patient. So again, lots of work going on, American College of Radiology, RSNA, industry, the government. Okay, enough said there. I also mentioned this book a bit more detail about contrast agents and just gave some of our principles, Omni till about creatinine of 1.7, above 1.7, going with Visipake, higher risk patients, diabetes, uh, cardiac, uh, CT studies, PE studies, older patients, PEDS patients all get Visipake. And again, that works very nicely. I also made some points, uh, and I covered some of this in one of my vodcasts a few months back, looking at some of the recent articles on contrast, making the point that dose-related uh, reactions or contrast-related reactions are very rare in the pediatric population. And if they do occur, particularly in young children, they're very mild and uh, there was a very nice article by Callahan that made that point. And then there was a really good article by Davenport that made the point that if patients have had mild reactions and are pretreated, the odds are they won't get a reaction again 85% of the time. But if they do, the breakthrough reactions are likely to be mild or moderate and similar to the initial reaction. So if you had anaphylactic shock the first time, I'm not giving you contrast. I don't care how much you, I premedicate you. But for mild reactions, you premedicate, bang, you're in good shape. And patients, they asked the question, what patients were more likely to have a breakthrough reaction? Patients with a history of oral corticosteroid use, chronic in nature, patients with significant multiple allergies uh, are really the high-risk patients. And you can see 
uh, did not result in a repeat breakthrough reaction. So this is important to recognize pre-medication is critical and there are many different ways of pre-medicating and I'll just show you some of the facts from that article that I mentioned a moment ago that you can read. Our Hopkins protocol is 24-12, one hour, uh, basically giving the patient 40 of prednisone. Typically we'll give some um, Benadryl before the study within the hour. And this article did a different protocol, uh, 13-7-1. So there are many ways of doing things, 14-8-2 I've heard. But again, split doses really work the best. Okay, now on to CT. Why 64 slides are better? Spatial resolution under 0.4. Temporal resolution 160 to 180 milliseconds quoted for 64 slides. You can get now with dual source flash as low as 0.75. And then of course everything is isotropic. So when we look at the coronaries, the ability to freeze motion, looking at a small structure and looking at a heart that's beating these high temporal and spatial resolution, the ability to track this vessel, this LAD, which has a minimal uh, non-calcified plaque proximally, or this right coronary with minimal plaque, really relies on the combination of spatial and temporal resolution. Now another thing, of course, about CT is how we use the information in the sense that we could time acquisitions, we can get multiple phases, but you don't want to get too many phases. And I'll go through in some of the talks, and many of the talks we've done already, what phases you routinely need in what situations. But a good example is the liver. We do multi-phase imaging because arterial phase, 30% of hepatomas will only be seen there. You'll miss lots of vascular metastases if you don't do arterial phase. Here very nicely, venous and arterial invasion is shown. And late phase imaging just doesn't give you that detail. You can see the mass, but it's hard to judge much about the vascularity. It's hard to judge much about vascular invasion. So again, it's using multiple uh, of these acquisitions. Or this case, vascular lesion, central scar, homogeneous, except for the scar. It's vascular, but not like an islet cell, not like the prior hepatoma, but it's more like FNH. It's as bright as the IVC, and you look at another image, and there's a large central feeding vessel. This is focal nodular hyperplasia. No problem. We look at this example, hypervascular lesion, rim enhancement, but it's not puddling like hemangioma. There's a halo around it. When you look carefully, there's neovascularity. That's classic metastatic disease. In this case, a neuroendocrine tumor. Or this patient with a hepatoma. Look how beautifully we see the neovascularity. And one point I made at the meeting, and I'll make to you online as well, is that CT is so much more than looking at masses or looking at slices. It's really the detail. Look at the neovascularity in the patient's hepatic artery. Look at the type of detail we can see, the AV shunting, and here's another set of images. We can see what vessels are being fed, how they're being fed. We can be much more specific in terms of management. We can be much more specific in terms of diagnosis. And again, it's really because we have this isotropic resolution. It's not just seeing a vascular mass, it's understanding it. And I speak before, I speak now about CT always being about information per study. We're in the information business. We're not in the slice business. If I was in the slice business, I'd be selling pizza. So when we think about what we need to do, we've made the point that you must look at coronals and sagittals. Most scanners now, they're sent directly to, from the technologist at the scan to the workstation. And 3D imaging, particularly interactive 3D, becomes critical. We've published articles that show that one-third of lesions can be missed 
if you don't look at the 3D maps. And we make the point that even if you don't miss something, there's so much more information that understanding that volume imaging requires volume visualization. And just a couple examples, looking at this little dot and asking what the dot is and recognizing that dot is the patient's left adrenal vein. Look how nicely you see the 3D reconstruction. Instead of looking at slices, you look at the volume and look how obvious it indeed is. Transferring information from the radiologist to the referring physician, understanding the information as the radiologist, all are enhanced by these techniques. Or I showed this example before, pseudoaneurysm, aortic root, some hematoma around it, but look at it in 3D. Now you see the anastomotic line, you see the pseudoaneurysm where it arises, you see a more proximal dissection, you see the orientation to the right coronary artery. All of the information is so much easier to see and understand. Or this patient. This patient's a great case. Uh, renal transplant, left lower quadrant, pancreatic transplant, right lower quadrant. Show it to you a few different ways. Here it is with volume rendering, showing you very nicely the implantation of the patient's uh, pancreatic artery to the right common iliac and the left renal artery to the left common iliac on the transplant and then taking you from those images and putting details in. Look at the detail of the left kidney. Look how it sits right on the iliac vessel. Beautiful visualization, color-coded, color map. Simply adjust the color, but look at the detail we're getting. And here's a view from behind. You can see very nicely where that uh, renal artery from the transplant kidney uh, is anastomosed to the external iliac on the right side. So there's so many things we can see. Now, all of these things, you can see I removed the bone here. That's the critical step. Require bone uh, editing tools. And bone editing is one of the many tools we see today. And I'll show you a number of these tools, but each of these, the goal is to enhance our ability to understand information. And whether it's CAD, like with colonoscopy or PE or lung nodule detection, or it's simply a fly-through, uh, all of these tools are really uh, there to help us. I'll just mention editing. We always edit information, but it took us forever. Now with a technique like the interactive watershed transform, what we're able to do is edit very quickly, edit in real time, and the computer edit, edit without us being a helper. So this case, we're looking at cirrhotic liver, you can see all of the ribs. Ribs are the hardest thing, and the spine. Well, look at it here. Here's the, the MIP. Okay, you see the ribs, and the, but now look what happens. I've taken the ribs away and look how much more information you have. So the ability to understand, visualize, we get rid of information that's not critical to the scene and go from there. Or this case, interesting case, Ehlers-Danlos, patients had grafts placed and now the grafts are narrowing down. Look at the grafts proximal uh, mid-abdominal aorta. Beautiful visualization, I'll take the bones away into red and there I'm left with MIP and volume rendering, type of detail we can get. Or this example, patient has occlusion of the abdominal aorta and now we're seeing graphs. Look at the detail on the image on your right and here it is coned down. Graphs from the axillary arteries to the superficial femoral arteries bypassing the patient's occluded aorta. Just a beautiful visualization from MIP to volume rendering and then we'll look closer with targeted imaging. There's the upper chest, beautiful visualization. We cut in a bit more just to get the uh, graphs. And then here's just another example and seeing that. And then of course we put things back together and 
Okay, we can comb down on the pelvis. So lots of information, and it's much easier to see things in the volume by choosing what you want to see and what you don't want to see. Putting in the bone, taking out the bone. Putting in the vessels, taking out the vessels. These are all things we do in real time. And one last example, in orthopedics, you can't do this by hand as well as you can on a computer because the uh, carpal bones are so touched, the metacarpals are so close, they're touching. But look how we can pull things out without creating any artifact or disarticulating the femur from the acetabulum, color coding, there's the fracture medial wall. Now I've pulled the femur out and we can see it very nicely as I color code it and send this away. Very, very nice visualizations. So now we're able to see specifically subparts of the data set that indeed become critical. And there have been a number of different articles. Here was an article on the topic by Heath talking about how we use our techniques. Now I'll c conclude with making the point whenever you use a computer you have to be careful. Here it looks like the anterior tibial is occluded for a segment but you realize the computer actually pulled that segment out when it was doing the editing. So we love computers but don't trust computers with everything. You need to make certain everything is in the right place and so you need to overlap with the computers and look very carefully at the data set. If not, you're going to have uh, these type of errors. What else? Well, there are many different applications and as Rod Stewart said, every picture tells a story. So we'll end it maybe with every clinical application.